Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by The Nostalgist, the new novel by Griffin Hansberry. It tells the story of Jonas Soloway, an old man before his time estranged from his astrophysicist father and effectively orphaned when an SUV took his mother's life, Jonah longs to make a human connection, even if it means lying to get it. When he calls the phone number of Rose Oliveri's 9-11 missing poster and reaches her mother, Vivian, one lie gives birth to another and another, and before Jonah knows it, the truth becomes indiscernible even to him. Stalked by Rose's ghost and desperate to keep the Oliveri's from uncovering his lie, Jonah finds himself adrift in a city he no longer recognizes and more alone than ever. Both a poetic journey into the heart of post-9-11 New York and a darkly comic commentary on how our culture copes with loss, The Nostalgist is a striking debut novel from a masterful new author. Again, that's The Nostalgist by Griffin Hansberry, due out on September 11th, 2012 from MP Publishing. For more information, please visit mppublishingusa.com. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people talking on the telephone. This is what you've decided to do with yourself. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for downloading me. I like to be downloaded. Uh, I like to be uploaded, too, but I prefer to be downloaded. It's the end of the day here uh, out in Los Angeles. I just finished writing uh, or trying to write. I'm deep into the second half of this novel that I've been working on. And the further uh, into it I get, what I'm finding is that the writing gets slower and slower and more and more difficult. It's not a sprint to the finish line, at least not yet. Uh, it is right now what can safely be classified as an absolute punishing grind. Uh, I feel like one of those people you see running a marathon, you know, on the news. And they're in extraordinary pain. Their facial expressions uh, are indicative of extraordinary pain. And their legs are shaking. And it's clear uh, that at any moment they might collapse or uh, spontaneously relieve themselves. So creatively speaking, that's about where I am right now. But seeing as I've come this far, 
Uh, I figure I've got to keep running. I'm going to keep going until I finish this thing one way or the other because I need to be done with it. Uh, I need to get it right. I need to get the words in the right order uh, for some reason, and I need to get it out of my life. And uh, that is my relationship with my literary uh, creative project at the moment. It is one of obsession and uh, revulsion (laughs) and ultimately expulsion. Okay. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, my guest today, Miles Klee, uh, he's a young author. His debut novel is called Ivy Land, and it is available now from OR Books. It has been generating uh, a good bit of buzz and uh, some pretty heady comparisons. Reviewers uh, have been throwing names around like David Foster Wallace, George Saunders, Philip K. Dick, J.G. Ballard, and uh, that sort of thing. So it's a pretty good launch to a literary career. And uh, what can I say? I am glad to have caught Mr. Klee right here at the beginning of his ascent. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it's just a completely befuddling place. I mean, the roads explain a lot. The turnpike is just a baffling road. Uh, you know, for someone who grew up driving on it and basically learned to drive on places like the turnpike, I will still get lost routinely for about two and a half hours um, (laughs) trying to find some familiar landmark. Uh, It's, I don't know, it's got that Mobius strip quality where you just, you you will wind up somewhere and think, oh, I I wasn't here since the last time I was lost, you know, and and somehow I'm always deposited at this uh, nexus, which is usually some kind of a grimy, uh, you know, strip mall. Uh, gas stations. Uh, it's kind of it, it, it's almost defined by uh, where where the things are by the side of the road and the rest stops. Well, no, uh, it's the like, highway is very associated. Uh, I was just going to yeah. say, like in uh, in um, oh god, what, being John Malkovich when they come out of like the portal or whatever, they're spit out onto the, <laughs> yeah. they spit out onto the side of the turnpike. Is that correct? They are. They are. They're they're kind of uh, toward the Lincoln Tunnel exit, I think. Uh, which is a funny kind of, yeah, yeah. You get the sense that they come out of this umbilicus, like, <laughs> um, into the kind of swampland there. Um, the the meadowlands are this, uh, this definitely by the meadowlands, um, which are this kind of great setting. Um, it's great to take the train from New York back into New Jersey to see my parents because it's just a uh, fantastic wasteland you travel through. Uh, and you know, even the stuff that's up there working is kind of dilapidated looking at all these. Uh, kind of electric wires that are 
sinking into the, the murk and the mire. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you've got like the big sports arenas out there and, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's a very transitional space. Um, New Jersey seems like it's there to get you to the next point. Do you feel any like allegiance to it? Do you feel like a pride in the fact that you're from New Jersey? Do you have that kind of thing? Like the kind of territorial pride? Oh, of course. Well, well, I, I think I think every person who grows up there develops a sort of defensiveness about it, uh, where they need to talk about, um, I don't know, the, uh, how it made them them. And I think that's very, um, you know, that's that's true of me. I'm no exception there. Um, it's it's a completely bizarre place, and it's the most densely populated. Um, uh, state of the union so that that gives it a kind of um you're living on top of each other feel uh that i don't know it's not even the same it's not even the same in new york uh you know you're much more stranger in new york uh in new jersey i feel like you know everybody and, and you start to make a you start to make a project of knowing more people everyone in high school in jersey does this weird thing where uh once they're kind of you know they haven't exhausted their friends uh at home, but they, they go to like another high school and find like another clique of friends at another school that's kind of outside their experience. And because, because the schools are all kind of close together, but you know, very slightly different, uh, there are more, um, uh, there are more impoverished areas and there are very wealthy areas and you know, they're all these often all within the same kind of townships and, um, you know, it, it can create very charged situations and then you can, you can also hop across lines, you know, if you're not happy with uh, your lot in your high school, you, you kind of go and find whatever it is you're looking for. So what were, where were you when you were growing up? Like, what side of the line were you on? Did you go to, like, a, uh, a public school situation in Jersey, and were you, like, looking around at the different strata and moving around? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I went to Columbia High School, which is uh, South Flowers and Maplewood. Um, that's about 60% black school. Um, and, you know, 40% everything else. Uh, and that's, and those are two towns that are very divided. Um, you know, I was, I was growing up on a little more affluent side of town, but then, you know, they were up in the hills. Uh, Newstead was this neighborhood that was like very associated with the kind of suburban elite. You know, they had the views of Manhattan. Uh, they had the infinity pools up on the, up on the hills there. Um, <laughs> We were more down the valley, but still, you know, pretty well off. And then there were um, areas that were a little closer to the other oranges or Newark um, that were just had much more of an inner city vibe. And there would be a lot more violence and crime in those kinds of areas. Um, and, it, you know, the school, for that reason, uh, because it was a public school and because it was so diverse, could be kind of a power keg for uh, class and race issues all the time. Um, and actually, after. Um, after 9-11, it, it became uh, the kind of school that was getting evacuated uh, a couple times a week for bomb threats um, for whatever reason after, uh, and that's actually, that's actually mentioned in the book, for whatever reason after that, uh, it became this very touch-and-go situation. A lot of principals came through, and, uh, you know, they, they since, they've since turned it around, uh, it sounds like, to, to great acclaim, but... Um, yeah, for a while, it just a uh, just a very just a very volatile time there. Okay, so how old were you when nine eleven happened? Were you in high school? Uh, yeah, I would be. I would have been um, a junior. Uh, 
Yeah, and that was a funny and that was a funny day too because uh, well, now we're getting into personal level of stories. That's that's great. Uh, it didn't take long, dude. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, that was a very odd thing because that was a commuter town, and um, you know, definitely uh, people in that community uh, died um, in in Twin Towers, and uh, you know, people from schools, parents, and. And, you know, I, for one, I didn't know where my dad was initially. You know, he never, he ne- he was one of those people who never made it in. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, we weren't, unlike the kids in New York, uh, nobody was sending us home. It was it was much more of a lockdown situation. Um, you know, they kind of told us to ignore it, which was an even more fascinating thing. They wouldn't, they, you know, they demanded that we turn off all the TVs uh, and kind of no one could, no one was really allowed to go out and, contact anyone else unless they just made a break for it really um it was sort of more their style to just uh uh just kind of keep order at any cost you know if they weren't having the whole uh they weren't having the whole evacuation well that's interesting i mean not only were they not evacuating but they were also in some it seems like they were in some sort of like state of institutional denial absolutely and that was that was um you know that was a, that was a familiar kind of attitude for them to take uh <laughs> whatever went wrong um they went very draconian i guess you know they you know the whole time uh, i was there they were trying to institute this other thing this alternative program um and that was meant for you know these these discipline cases that you know were so were so bad and so disruptive that they basically couldn't uh operate within the confines of the school a school that was already, you know, instituting some really crazy, you know, tracking procedures and um, uh, any any kind of rule to impose order. And uh, well, wait, what, what do you mean by what do you mean by what do you mean by crazy tracking procedures? <laughs> okay, well, um, this this is a really controversial thing about like how smart you were and how fast you were learning, um, and that was that became like a very racial uh, issue because they were kind of taking these minority. Well, I mean, my, minority white students were kind of making up these uh, fast-track classes, um, and the school was kind of leaving its black population behind in a, in a very serious way. Um, and that became and that became a huge deal. Um, and then on the other side, they had you know these behavior problems and you know these um, associated with like uh, poverty and crime and. Um, you know, they were some of the first. They were one of the first public schools to start instituting really serious uh, public IDs, um, things you had to hold at all times. And uh, you know, we had cops in the school and everything. Uh, and then on top of that, they were trying to filter out some of these kids who, you know, I don't even know. But I guess, I guess they were somehow disruptive, and uh, they tried to ship them off to this other school. And you know, the, the school was being protested every day at one point. Jesus. So, okay, so this is like, this is actually a question that I've asked somebody on this program before. And it's something that, for you know, it's something that I want to get to the bottom of. And I've, I've actually gotten resistance when I've asked it before. Like, so, you know, I, I sort of presume sometimes when somebody, um, like lived in New York, uh, on nine eleven, and or, or was of a certain age, I think I, I forget who I was talking to. I might've been talking to Megan Boyle, who is uh, mm-hmm. a bit younger and she, I think we were talking about 9-11, and I was like, well, you know, since you were so young at the time that that happened, did it have any kind of formative impact on your worldview? And she wasn't anywhere near Manhattan. 
uh, she was raised elsewhere and she said no, you know, and so uh, it's sort of like uh, squashed my hypothesis. And so what I'm curious to do is, is to test it again, because, you know, there you are in Jersey, you're within, um, you know, shouting distance of Man- of lower Manhattan. And this happens when you're a junior in high school and your school is, you know, all of a sudden on lockdown and there's cops around and uh, I guess there was turnover in the administration and, and this, that and the other, like, how much of an impact did that have on you, like formatively? Like, do you feel like, you know, a lot of your worldview, uh, you know, at this point in your life anyway, was born out of that? Or do you feel like it had less of an impact? No, it, it was a big deal. Uh, you know, people talk about the mediation of that experience uh, because so many people only saw it on TV. And what was so strange was I went through a day where, I was watching it on TV until the point I was told I was no longer allowed to watch it on TV. Uh, And then when I went home, uh, my dad took me up to the mountain reservation, which is where you can see the city, uh, so that we could see kind of with our own eyes, as were hundreds of other people were already up there. I had left memorials already, uh, you know, at 5 o'clock that afternoon, um, just to see kind of the the smoke rising. Um, It was... It was bizarre to have have it first be something that seemed, you know, but like most people saw it, a kind of televisual phenomenon, like it, you know, like a movie. People said, um, then to have it kind of denied denied that it was happening, um, and then finally to see it with your own eyes. I, I mean, I, I felt like I, I felt like I ran through like a couple of different ways of experiencing it that were all completely contradictory, and so I think. In that sense, it was a formative uh, moment because these huge events are never just one thing. You know, it's it's uh, when you want to talk about how the country was changed or things were changed by these huge kind of linchpin events. Uh, I don't know; they're so multifaceted and so they're so hard to get a grip on um, that, that at some point we're and this is definitely the attitude there. We're we're just acting like we've got a handle on it. Like, oh uh, well. <laughs> you know, I remember. I remember as a 15 year old, I was kind of like, you know, I've got to pretend that I'm not surprised, or, or you know, I've got to be. You know, I'm so cynical and so dark then that I that I that it was almost as though I had had these horrible things confirmed for me, and I didn't know what to make of that. Were you Were you a really cynical and dark uh, teenager? <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know what it was. I. I think, you know, I think I went through a really hard puberty and then it kind of worked out okay. Um, but, well, well, what, yeah, was, when what I was, was hard about it? Did you have, like, bad skin or something? Like, what was it that was so intense? Uh, no. Uh, well, it kind, of, it kind of all happened at once. So I had these kind of gross... Uh, I, I grew um, about a foot and a half in a year, and, and sometimes it was, like, very painful. And I, when I was younger, I had had, like, a hernia and all this stuff, and... Um, it was like a bit, and you know, when it and finally when it did all happen, I was kind of like, uh, you know, hadn't you know, I needed another year to get used to my skeleton, basically. So it was just very awkward in that sense. Were you, tri- and, were you um, tripping and falling and stuff like that? Were you like, yeah, you know, I was like, uh, I was, I was like very, I was very clumsy and awkward, and um, you know, for, um. I had I had like braces for a very long time, and you know I had these huge glasses that were like, <laughs> for whatever reason, I could never get glasses that were right for my face. So like these huge door glasses, and like, uh, you know, it was just every it was just the perfect storm 
have had like a charmed childhood in every respect and perfect parents and perfect family. And, you know, even my friends would make fun of me, I think, for <laughs> for having an almost picturesque, like, you know, the golden retriever and the big house in the backyard and everything like that. So I had to find something to be upset about. Isn't it, um, isn't it strange? Though? Like, everybody has something. And then, like, you know, if you, if you don't have anything super heavy in your youth, like, I don't know if you go through this as a writer, but do you ever feel, you know, do you feel guilt about it? Or... Like, even worse. Like, it's one thing to feel guilty for the, the good fortune that you've had because so many people have it so much worse. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a part of you as a writer, I find sometimes, or at least this is my experience, where I will read about somebody's memoir or something, and they've gone through some horrific thing, and I'll be like, man, I just, you know, I have nothing to write about, like, compared to that. <laughs> See what I'm saying? I'll have, like, tragedy and oh, yeah. something terrible like that. But um, Oh, absolutely. Then I, well, my, I mean, then I my wife... Myself. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally, I totally know what you mean. And um, my wife and I laugh about this because um, she says when she was a kid, she would think, oh, nobody, nobody who was ever a successful writer uh, had a good relationship with their family. So you have to sabotage your family's, your, all of your relational uh, things so that you can be miserable, so that you can be a writer, which is just the funniest idea. Um, <laughs> I... I, I had a bit of that, I think. I, I think I thought you had to be a little bit tortured to get anywhere. Now, were you dressing in all black and stuff like that? Like, how did your how did your how did your cynicism and sense of like you know, I, I must be tortured? How did that manifest like aesthetically? Well, it it, it definitely had to do something with uh, trying to read books that I wasn't ready for. <laughs> uh, I was just trying to plow things through things I had no understanding of. Uh, I remember the gravity thing by that way, uh, which is one of the things where you're like, oh, this is really fun, and I just have no concept of what I'm doing. Uh, then then there was, uh, actually, hilariously, I, I did like a lot of, which I did a lot of theater and like musicals and stuff. Which, you know, you, don't, you wouldn't always associate that with like the bleakest kid. You know, it's kind of a Dionysian thing. But, uh, you know, and I did enjoy that aspect of it, but I also enjoyed being the kind of dark one of the company, I guess, you know, whether I was, whether I really was that, probably not. I think the real dark ones are like working stage crew. Uh, but you know, <laughs> they're like the, the, ga I, I tried the gaffers, to it's the gaffers. Who are yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. This, the sound people are always just kind of miserable. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like I remember trying to impress, uh, you know, the more jovial actors with my brooding. Uh, that was definitely part of it. But no, I, I wasn't dressing darkly. Uh, weirdly enough, I think in ninth grade, I was wearing only Hawaiian shirts. The <laughs> Old Navy was doing a big line of Hawaiian shirts, and that was all I would wear. <laughs> so now, what kind of kid, like, where did you fit into the social strata? Were you a drama geek, or were you a, uh, were you, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, were you a cool kid? Were yeah. Do you have a lot of friends? Drama, drama geek. No, it was not cool. Uh, uh, I think, I think I had, um, you know, some friends among the kind of uh, straight A students, and some among the kind of theater crowd, and that was it. You know, I could kind of move between those and uh, and or you know where they where they overlapped. But outside of that, I was very uncomfortable. And, and you said that you uh, you said that you grew a, a foot and a half in a year. Is that correct? Yeah, about that. So how tall are you? Uh, I'm 6'2", so oh, okay. pretty short before. And then I just, 
Yeah. No, I was going to say, like, are you are you like seven feet tall? Like, what, <laughs> <laughs> what happened here? Um, okay. And then you said that you were, you know, you were acting. So you have some like proclivity for that. Like, were you, uh, I mean, is it something you're still interested in or is that something that sort of, uh, you know, faded as you got out of high school? It did say, you know, I was doing, I did it through college. Uh, I, I, was, I was singing too. And, uh, that, was the, that was the other thing. Uh, I was doing all these kind of New Jersey regional choirs and stuff like that. And it's funny. You can't say those things without sounding like you're bragging about it. So definitely not. Uh, they, they were, they were these weird, you know, I would do almost any performative thing. Um, and then, then I was doing it some in college too. And then when I got out of college, I did some improv at UCB and stuff like that. And no, what, my you, wife was, are you a, uh, uh, in comedy? How do yeah. you sing? Like, what's your voice? Like, what's the, uh, what's your range? Oh, well, it's, it's ruined. It's ruined now from, um, you know, a decade of partying, but, uh, <laughs> It, it, it used it used to be a, it used to be a fairly high tenor and then it kind of you know kept slipping the tenor too and now it's a little bit more of a baritone I think. And then as, um, as far as like the performative aspects of your personality go, or like the things that you would gravitate towards in terms of theater, uh, you know, is that was that at odds with how you behaved socially, or were you a pretty uh, like extroverted person? You know, no. Well, that was the thing I loved about acting was that I was a very introverted person, and it allowed me to become this extroverted person. You know, that was that was kind of how I got my footing in uh, the world of having to be social. Uh, was that I was always well. The fun thing was I was always getting cast as assholes. That was like my, you know, whatever. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't think I'm a particularly mean person, but I think I I have a kind of. I have a kind of neutral facial, facial expression where people think I'm mad at them or you know, <laughs> judging them or something. That's a good thing. To um, have. That's a good thing to have. You know, yeah. like, you want to keep people off balance a little bit. I think that's <clears> like <throat> you know, if you're always smiling, you know, that that's that's nice yeah. too. But you don't have nearly as much. Uh, I think it's good to be a little bit mysterious that way. You know? Yeah, I guess I guess there was a gravitas, and you know, pe- people. It's the funniest thing, like you know. Uh, a month after I'd met someone for the first time and, you know, we've become a little bit more friendly, people will usually admit to me, I thought you, I thought you hated me when I first met you. <laughs> and, and it's the oddest thing. It's like, I'm just, you know, I, 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 I feel like I have, I feel like I, maybe it's because that I have to make such an effort to be an ex, like an extroverted person. Um, that people are just like, not nah, feeling it. I don't know. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I don't know that they're, they're I don't want to say they're intimidated because, you know, that's, again, building me up a little bit too much, but I don't know what it is. Well, so I would think cats as assholes always, the villains. And did that ever give you, did that ever give you any kind of complex? Were you self-conscious about it or did did you embrace it? Oh, I thought it was cool. I mean, uh, it went along with the whole breeding thing, so I kind of embraced it. And then, you know, because you're always acting out in those roles and kind of, maybe even chewing the scenery a bit. Um, that gave me the confidence outside, I would say, a theater uh, to, you know, actually go on a date or something. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, like, what actors were you trying to emulate? Did you have heroes in the brooding category that you were kind of, like, looking up to? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know if I was ever... I, I don't know if I was even thinking about it that hard, to be honest. Uh you know, on stage, it would always be, I don't know, I guess at that time, you're kind of enthralled with what your teacher's throwing at you, 
It's just usually some Stanislavski or, you know, whatever, whatever uh, kind of introduction to method you're looking at. Uh, I'm kind of method guys are cool in high school because it's like, oh, man. Wait, no, oh, they're really doing it. They're really doing it. <laughs> what did you just say? And that you, seems you, intense and cool. You broke up a little bit. What did you just say about high school? Oh, uh, I'm saying that <clears throat> I guess in high school you're kind of enthralled to those what your teacher is telling you, which is kind of that Stalinovsky method stuff, and you kind of think the method guys are so cool and intense because they're really doing it. Right. Um, I don't know. I guess the, I guess those guys come read as cool. Uh, but at the at the time, you know, I don't even know. I can't even think of what movies I was liking. It's 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 such a weird blank. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, those are hard questions. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's your favorite blank? It's just it always winds up making my head just you know go completely white or something. But um, you know, one it makes me think of this. I remember years ago when I was like you know in my early 20s, I think, and I was like trying to be a serious artist or whatever. I remember reading a biography of Marlon Brando. Um, not because I had any interest in acting, but just because he was like sort of this like exemplar of like, you know, outstanding artist. And so I was like, well, what's this guy's deal? And I read this gigantic biography of him by Peter Manso. And it is to this day, like the most like emotionally exhausting book I've ever read in my life. <laughs> like his life was just so insane, you know, like, and he was a brilliant guy, yeah. you know, and there's a lot to like about him, but there's just so much, so much craziness, uh, you know, that I had not been aware of, you know, just obviously just watching the movies, you only get, um, you know, surface level stuff, but it was, uh, it was fascinating. I just remember having to put it down, like walk away, like, you know, <laughs> do some that's, stretching. I think that's why I love watching those, like those movies when Brando's really old. Like, I can't, I, I think it was called the heist or something, but it's like a heist movie that he's in when he's super old. And it's just kind of like, I don't know, sitting in steam rooms and like telling, you know, he's like bankrolling the heist or whatever it is. Yeah. And he's just so fucking weary. <laughs> and like, uh, just all the, the sheen of sweat on him is just, I mean, it's incredible. Like, there's just no, he, and it's so funny because he waltzes into this kind of undercooked movie in a, in a huge Brando way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, carrying he, the weight of the world with him. Well, and he just, uh, he could get away with anything. I mean, like the, these people, because he was so talented and had like this box office, you know, mojo or whatever, like he would just be, able, he, he could behave so terribly to people and, yeah. uh, and they would just take it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, he was, he was, he could be very difficult, I think. To... Coppola just needs him too badly. Yeah. Well, you know, but I mean, actually that was, you know, Coppola was, I think fairly good at working with him or they had some sort of rapport, but man, if he didn't like you or he didn't think you knew what you were doing, forget about yeah. it. He would just absolutely like destroy you. <laughs> oh, but I'm, but I'm sure he shows up to apocalypse now, not knowing the lines. Oh yeah, no, and no. Like and just like, yeah. like, you know, 150 pounds overweight. Like that's the whole, like the, that's a part of the book that's so interesting is that like, you know, or I, I don't know if it was even in that book or if it was in something else I read, but I know that when <laughs> they were doing, uh, those scenes with Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, like the reason they shot it the way that they did was because he was so heavy. So they only shot. Oh, his... so they have him in the shadows. Yeah. yeah, they just have him in the shadows, and it's just his head, and like. Oh, know, that's brilliant. And he's like reading his lines off of a card off camera. You know, like he's right, right. He's got he's got a little like journal. Yeah, he's just like totally, <laughs> and, and it was great. You know, it's still great. This is, this is reminding me. Actually, you should watch rewatch Island of Doctor Moreau because that's got to be a bizarre performance too. Yeah, that's the one he did late with like Val Kilmer. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I just heard that was awful, or like somehow. Like... Yeah, no, it's terrible. It's, it's. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's. it's terrible enough to watch. Yeah, terrible. Like terrible. Maybe good. Terrible in some sort of strange way. Um. So okay. So I want to. I want to get onto the topic of pharmaceuticals, uh, which seems okay. which seems apt. And I'm I'm gonna stick. I, I want to stick with, um, at least some degree of generational context because, um. I feel like it's. I feel like that's accurate, or I want to. I want to ask you if it's accurate because you know this is obviously something that you have insight into, or something that you're um, responding to in the culture, and it's found its way into your fiction. And I also feel like you know over the last decade, and like you know, just to use, I, I don't want to over uh, play the nine eleven card, but let's just say in the ten years after nine eleven, I feel like there's been a distinct rise in the um, consumption of, uh, pharmaceuticals, you know, like mood altering mm-hmm. substances and, uh, mood management drugs and painkillers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, <clears throat> yeah. like what's, what's the starting point for you on that stuff? Like, is that something that you recognized, uh, happening in high school or was it something that you came to later in your life as you got into college and afterwards or what? I feel like it was college, honestly. Um, college was the first place I went where you could, you know, you'd be having a conversation with someone and they'd say, oh, you should go to health services. Um, they'll write you a prescription for Adderall, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, well, you know, I don't really necessarily want that. But what do you mean? I mean, and it's just, you know, you go in, you know the symptoms. Uh, you complain of what the pill fixes. And then you get the pill. It's that easy. And... Um, I think we're starting to discover as well that a lot of recreational drugs um, seem to be used in a self-medicating way. Um, so, you know, in other words, not just the pills, but, you know, uh, pot and LSD uh, and all these things are being used in a sort of medical way when they're, when they're not being rampantly abused. Um, and, you know, uh, it would be fascinating, of course, as always, to see, um, you know, how many, what the incidence of, you know, heroin addiction and, you know, pre-existing clinical depression is. Um, you know, there are the, just these, all these interesting correlations that are very hard to tease out um, because of this line we have between the legal and the, the illegal stuff. Um, well, I've never really been on a prescription or anything, um, and I guess that's part of why I started being so interested in it. Well, okay, so when you went, and where did you go to college? You went to, uh, what was it? Uh, Williams College. And how did you wind up there? Uh, you know, Jersey is like a, um, a crowd, a kind of crowded place, as I mentioned. And um, I loved the idea of these small schools up in the middle of nowhere. Um, and this was kind of one of the ideal one of those. It's just, a, yeah, it's just a, in a beautiful valley, just um, completely postcard perfect about 2000 students um and you know i could uh study the classics to my heart's content you know and uh it had you know it had while it still had the good art museums and you know mass mocha is kind of right around the corner and uh yeah um a fun place definitely And, and what did you study while you were there uh i double majored in english and philosophy okay 
Um, and that's actually that, that you're, you're like the second or third person recently that I've spoken with that um, majored in philosophy in college. And uh, yeah, which is funny because I feel like I still have uh, not read so many <laughs> philosophers. Oh God, dude. Uh, I'm, or, so, I'm so wildly underread in philosophy. Like it just might makes me nervous to think. Yeah. No, I feel I almost feel as though the major is just also to make you feel completely underread, uh, <laughs> because you know you can th- you could if you listed uh, the ten top philosoph- you know ten philosophers off the top of your head, I guarantee you I wouldn't have read eight of them. Well, and I just feel and like a, I feel like a lot of it's really hard to read. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just like the the, the, the writing is difficult. So you pick up a book by one of these um, you know legendary philosophers, and it's like it's just insanely tedious reading and so i'm always looking for some, i'm always looking for somebody you know who can really explain it to me in a distilled manner you know it's clear oh yeah no it's it's you can't do it and you know uh german students will read kant in english because kant in german is even that much harder like they'll they'll read the translation because it's easier <laughs> Well, no, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. I actually have a book sitting here that uh, somebody sent me, some publisher sent me, and it's by, I want to say Luke, hang on a second. It's called, it's by Luke Ferry. It's called A Brief History of Thought. I've got to get to it, but it's, uh, I think it kind of breaks, oh, well. I think it breaks down all of the uh, the different schools. So maybe that'll be my, prim- <laughs> maybe that'll be my oh, primer. Oh, that's a good, you know, I love those books too, because they're, you know, philosophers will always do this survey of all these philosophers, and the hilarious thing is, you know, someone else, another philosopher will read it and tell you that they got every single philosopher wrong except for the one that they agree with, you know. So, like, you know, uh, I guess famously Leibniz did one of these and pretty much, <laughs> you know, didn't accurately describe anyone but himself. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, part of what's so funny about philosophy is that they're just all, uh, you know, they're they're almost not arguing that they're 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 almost not arguing disagreements. They're always arguing misreadings. You know, like oh, you misinterpreted what I said, or I I meant this, and that's why you can't get out of it this way. You know, the the contortions of logic of logic are just uh, awful. <laughs> and and what's so funny is they're trying to get to the bottom of the same thing. Say like you know whatever con- huge contemporary novelist is probably trying to do. Um, they're just trying to go about it in a completely banal, retentive way. It's it's very it's very processional, logical, and orderly. Unless you're Richard Rorty, kind of trying to dissolve the entire fabric of the argument. Uh, you're you're kind of perceiving this very fastidious way, and that's why they, why that's why this stuff often comes out so stilted. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what kind of student were you? Were you like a really committed college student, or were you sort of uh, dicking around in, you know, in undergrad? Or... <laughs> um, I would say that uh, you would take, I would take four classes a semester. In the first week, I would decide which one didn't mean shit to me, <laughs> and then I'd try to, do, and then I'd try to do well on the other ones. And, so, uh, and then there... I would definitely give one short shrift, you know, because. Yeah, you know, that, that that's the one where it's like you know if you've got to if you've got to go on some four a.m. road trip, you know which classes which class are you not going to do the homework for? Yeah. Yeah. Which one's expendable? Um, you know, you know, I don't know. It, it, it would change. It would change every time. It, it would, you know, you would you would try to pick four classes that you thought were going to be good, and then something would be terrible. So you know, something 
looking back on it, you're like, how the hell did you know, like, uh, intro to comparative politics or something. It's like, what was I taking a pie side class for? I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, bad adjunct professor, 8.30, start time. Yeah, <laughs> Always a killer. It, it's just out the window, yeah. <laughs> So now, uh, just to to weave it back a little bit, like when we were talking about uh, like the use of uh, prescription drugs among college students, like did you find at Williams, or was this part of the culture at Williams where students were taking this stuff not only recreationally but also like you know from a competitive standpoint, trying to like aid performance? Like that whole thing really fascinates me. Like you find that at the Ivy League schools where students are taking yeah. drugs like Adderall, not not to like you know get all geeked out and have some fun, but like actually to stay up later so they can outwork the competition, you know? Yeah. Um, it was a competitive place academically and, um, it was definitely getting used that way, but I think it's probably, I think it's probably gotten even more pronounced since, you know, I, I felt truly as though we were at the kind of beginning of this phenomenon and more and more, uh, there's, an impulse to see the pill as the solution to your problem. And, 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 you know, the idea that they could make a pill to solve almost anything, uh, more and more you get the idea that people are saying, you know, don't medicate, uh, or don't use antidepressants, you know, and then go talk about it too. Just use the antidepressants. I mean, it, there's almost i think i think the uh this psychological aspect is kind of slipping through our fingers um and we're getting to the point where people want to just think of these things as an unmitigated good and a way to improve yourself uh and if you're sad you can take this and you won't be sad anymore um but not only that um we're going to come out with stuff um that makes you think harder uh stuff that makes you more alert. Uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned caffeine earlier, uh, uh, before we started recording and it's, it's just the logical extension of that. Um, the idea that you can be better, faster, smarter, stronger, um, is going to keep collapsing down to, uh, pill the same, I guess kind of the same way the computer chip keeps getting smaller. It's like these solutions are going to start becoming more and more compact. Yeah, no, um, and it, like it's not only it's not just pharmaceuticals, but it's nutraceuticals. It's like it's everything from a performance standpoint. And then you know what? Like I'm endlessly watching pharmaceutical commercials on television, um, yeah. which always uh, there's just something not right about it. Because then, like, you say, <laughs> well, no, but I mean, like, like you say, like, and that wasn't the case until what the '80s. I, I don't know the political history of it, but I think the law got lifted where you could actually advertise. Um, prescription pharmaceuticals on television. That wasn't the case prior. You know, that used to be illegal. Mm. Um, but now it's like, you know, people are sitting at home sort of shopping. You know, they're watching these commercials and they're like, yeah, you know, I feel I feel bad. I think I could have some of that. And then they go into their doctor's office and they request it and the pharmaceutical company makes money. Yeah. Um, and, just, and, more, and more than any other product, I think they're selling you the complete life. You know, if it's an erectile dysfunction pill, that it it's not it's not selling you the sex it's selling you the satisfaction of the marriage and the kind of golden years <laughs> right and like uh, you're sitting in a bathtub outside in some like you know yes, yes. or or the or the sleeping pills are a great example those are like so heavily marketed and they're not selling you to sleep they're selling you like waking up in the morning right right like 
you're freshly rested, you're ready to go about your day. They're like they're selling they're selling you the perfect life rather than uh, anything that the pill is doing. So evil. What they should do, yeah, if they were honest, if they were actually honest when they were trying to sell you a sleeping pill, it would just be like a black screen, you know, mm-hmm. you will, you know, or something, you know, so it's just showing. This person instantly falling unconscious yeah. when they take the pill. <laughs> somebody, or somebody who's uh, had like too much wine, who took an Ambien, like you know, like uh, sleep. Oh God, yeah, and no, eating. and yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I mean the the Ambien is a perfect example. It's. I mean, what a goddamn ridiculous drug. And and people do the craziest, you know, every, you can turn around every day and hear about something else that somebody did on Ampium that you didn't know could happen. It's all like, uh, you know, people will go like sleep eat, you know, they'll like sleepwalk and go raid the fridge. They'll have sex. And they just, they'll have sex while they're It asleep. wakes up all their other impulses. Yeah. It's completely bananas. And like, uh, you know, I have a friend, his wife, they had a young child and they were, um, you know, not sleeping a lot. And it was like a Sunday night. And I want to say that his wife had to get up in the morning and had like a big business meeting. So she's like, I have to sleep tonight. Have to. And so she took an Ambien and she had had some wine and she's a tiny thing. She's really petite. And so, uh, my buddy was watching TV and, uh, you know, he thought that his wife had gone to bed and then he gets up to go to bed and he realizes that his wife uh, is like back in the in the nursery. I want to say she was like in the nursery or she was in the kids room or one of the kids rooms and she was sitting on the bed having a full-blown conversation with the stuffed animals. Oh, wow. Uh, like <laughs> completely out of her tree and like uh, to the point where my friend actually recorded it because he was like what is going on? Like she's lost it, you know, and uh, Oh, that's incredible. And yeah, and then you hear about people like, you know, freaking out on airplanes and, you know, doing stuff. A lot of times it's because they've taken a sleep aid and then had like you know, a couple of vodkas or whatever. You can't mix those things. No. Uh, so I take it you I have. Not. I take. I take it you have no similar experiences. I mean, like, what, what is your pharmaceutical history? Like, do you have any <laughs> any stories we should hear about? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, the way old pharmaceutical story that I was told is that uh, my grandfather was sort of. Um, I I guess you could think of him as the anti Timothy Leary. Uh, back in the, in the 50s and 60s, was doing a lot of research on LSD for the military and kind of coming to the opposite conclusions about all psychedelic drugs um, as the hippies were. And that's something that's always stuck with him through his life that he's always bringing up. Uh, he once actually, well, <laughs> once is undersigned. He many times wrote to presidents, including Nixon, um, to try to get them to disavow the use of LSD in war, because uh, he was kind of researching it as a military application um, and whether it could be used as a weapon. Um, that that has always been an interesting starting point to me for any kind of discussion like this, um, just because it's. I mean, it's crazy. It's hard. It's hard to fathom now. Um, you know that he was giving this to soldiers and kind of trying to see what happened and taking it himself for ethical reasons. Um, so yeah, if you, if you look at those kinds of situations and other things that the government has banned, um, well, ecstasy was also, you can imagine them going a lot differently. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of the recreational pharmaceuticals and hallucinogens that people take, uh, started out, you know, and were developed for military purposes or were born out of military <laughs> experiments. I want to say MDMA was that way. Um, Absolutely. And then, like, what what do you know about your grandfather's 
um, findings. You know what I'm saying? Like what was like if you say he reached the opposite conclusions of Timothy Leary? So obviously he was anti LSD as a <clears throat> recreational drug. Yes. Like what did he, did, uh, did he think it was harmful to take at all? Like there was no there were no redeeming aspects to it, or was it just one of those things? He, where, thought, he thought it was essentially corrosive to the brain. Um, that it kind of incapacitated you in a very dangerous way, um, which of course it does in a sense. I mean, he he was responding to it as basically a kind of neurotoxin, right? Like the way he ultimately talked about it was as though it were mustard gas, um, just that it's completely eroding your ability. Um, well, at the same time, exaggerating your sensory input while eroding your ability to decipher it would be the way you'd say it. Um, and so for that reason, just essentially dangerous. And uh, I think he was completely on the other side of the question of how you could gain insight. From I think he'd never uh, understood uh, how anybody could have seen some epiphany in it. You know, uh, to him, it was a purely destructive thing. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, like, taking it in the lab, and he's, like, really, like, monitoring the situation and probably yeah. taking notes the whole time, you know? Like, I mean, that's very funny for me to think of, uh, because, you know, if you're doing drugs, probably, you know, in the basement of a military compound is a little stressful sure. place to go through that. Yeah. Um, well, and just the, just it, the whole... It's, the whole... Funny, it's funny, in his science, uh, it feels, you know, unrigorous in that way, um, but it's kind of not taking it as on its own terms. Yeah, go to a concert or something, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leave the base. Well, well, you know, and they've done interest, other interesting things with it, too. Like, uh, I guess, giving it to people and then have them go to uh, a church service. And, you know, people have responded hugely well to that. Sure. You know, have feeling religious ecstatic experience or whatever. So, you know, whether it's, you know, you don't have to go to, like, an opium den to do it. It's just kind of you got to get outside those concrete walls, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm on the, I'm somewhere in the middle, I think, which is usually the case with me. Like, I think that like taking too much of anything is probably a bad idea, and you got to be really careful. But like, I just read a thing in the New York Times this past weekend about, uh, I don't know if you saw that where they were they were doing this study with people who were terminally ill or who had like a serious. Oh illness. yeah, yeah, uh, treating yeah treating them with uh, hallucinogens. Yeah, I mean, and like I think there's something to that. I think like, and maybe it's just you know. I don't know. It takes people outside of themselves, or it gives them an, a new insight, or it, you know. But the yeah, comfort, I mean, comfort uh, is comfort, you know. I mean, I think uh, Huxley took uh, mescaline on his deathbed, um, and I trust him. You know, yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> that seemed like that seemed like a good call. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, that's interesting. And the other thing that just seems farcical to me as well, like just inherently farcical, is the idea. Um, of doing anything like super serious on acid, but let alone like conduct like warfare, <laughs> you know, like, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Those things are clear. I mean, like, you know, in that sense, your grandfather hit the nail right on the head. Like those things are completely uh, incompatible and it's a very yeah. bad idea, you know, <laughs> like, and, and any commander in chief should probably disavow it. But like, there's also a side of me that says, you know, if you, not only would it, would it, uh, impair like the motor function and the basic cognitive abilities of soldiers, you know, in a theater of war, but it would also potentially, uh, completely implode like the chain of command and like any like psychological sense oh, yeah. for the need for well, war, you know, it could have serious, like deep 
like uh, systemic psychological impacts, you know, like that would, that oh, absolutely. you know, it, and it, once, once they realized, well, once they realized that, which they realized very quickly, then they started wondering, Oh, can we put in the water supply of the enemy so that they're inca- completely incapacitated became the next question. Um, but I think at the moment there, uh, the army is just stuck on the kind of amphetamine thing. Uh, I mean, I think they're doing there was an article about that too recently um, that they're just, you know, they're giving the soldiers a lot of crank just to kind of get through the day. Well, no, there's a, um, there's a, uh, there's a, a, a pharmacological, uh, you know, military government funded project. Uh, and I think the drug is called modafinil and it's basically, they're, they're trying to create a drug that uh, essentially functions as, a, as an amphetamine and keeps you up but without any kind of crash. And the whole point is that in warfare, you know, especially if you've got like uh, pilots, you know, in the air force or or helicopter pilots or whatever that are flying multiple missions and requires intense concentration. And it's very high stress, um, you know, and you, people can only do so much. And so you take these drugs and all of a sudden you don't need to sleep and there's no, you know, huge dip the way that you usually get when you take an amphetamine. But it's like crazy to think about. Like there could be like a pharmaceutical solution to sleep at some point, which I find depressing because I like sleep. <laughs> I really hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, no, like, but you know, I can totally see it happening. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you can work. Uh, all of a sudden, you can work twenty-four hours a day. You know, and then um, God knows what happens. Then all of a sudden, like a fifteen-hour workday is like normal, and ugh, it just you can sort of see that well, that snowball rolling. You know. Yeah, well, I I also love that they act like they they'll be able to do that with no side effects, or that you know that that sleep isn't somehow essential, uh, you know, besides the fact of resting. And you know, I, I'll be disappointed, I think, if they come up with that before they come up with a pharmacological solution to like having to, uh, you know, piss and crap. I think that should come first. <laughs> right. This is just a part of, part of the human experience that we could do without. Um, so, you know, and this is the other aspect of it. And, you know, I don't think that this will ever change for me. But, like, when I think about this stuff, when I think about pharmaceuticals, you know, on the prescription side of the line, and then I think about recreational drugs or illegal drugs or whatever, uh, I find it so complex. And we're sort of alluding to it and talking about it here, but it's like, it's impossible for me to pin it down and to say one way or the other uh, how I feel about it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just it's a big yeah. it's a big muddle to me. Like these things have great promise, uh, you know, as uh, treatment options or as therapeutic, um, you know, strategies or whatever you want to call it. But they they, they it can so easily slide into uh, misuse, and there's so much that you don't know that you have to you know you have to proceed with great caution. But yeah. I, think, I think all too often, like it gets dismissed, you know, entirely, or it gets embraced entirely, and so we wind up uh, having this conversation from those two polarities, and it just it misses all the interesting parts in the middle, you know. Yeah, I think um, in writing the book, I was trying to walk that line of being like, uh, it's not really one way or the other. Uh, I think so much, so much, uh, you know, it was. It was, I feel like it was a really risky thing, kind of getting into drugs, as uh, in a fiction writing sense, uh, because that's that just feels so full of landmines and also full of the kind of 
work that is very much falling on one side of the question or the other in a completely obnoxious way. Um, well, it's like, and like, all right, think about I hope it. it's neither of this. Well, no, and it's like, because like, I, I, for some reason, this just popped into my head, but like, I am sure I'm not the only person who like was in college and was like, what if you just got all the world leaders into a room? You know, like, you know, yeah. that, that whole like line of thinking, which I, it, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. it happens in dormitories all across the country. But like, what if you just got them all into a room and you dosed them all or you gave all of the uh, world leaders uh, MDMA yeah. in a controlled, in controlled environment and you had them. It talk. even, it even happens in like Borat, doesn't it? Or, uh, maybe, or yeah. Maybe. Holly G movie or something. Well, whatever. Where they're, just, where they're just like all accidentally eating weed brownies and they're all friends. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, yeah. I mean, and the thing about it is that like that's absurd. I get it, and it's simplistic. I get it, but like, what would happen? You know, like, <laughs> I, that is an exp- yeah. that is an experiment I would pay to watch. Like, I would watch. C- I would watch yeah. C-SPAN. Like, in oh, absolutely riveted. That would be the most watched thing. Ever. Uh, we should do I think, like, the, I think the real answer is that like half of them would be cool. And then, you know, then I have the other half would freak out, maybe. Well, no, it's like I was having this conversation about fame recently with a friend. And, um, you know, he was saying that, like, you know, whatever you are to begin with, fame just magnifies it. So, like, if you're an uptight asshole to begin with, then you get famous. And all of a sudden, like, the uptight asshole comes out, like, times 10. <laughs> and so, like, maybe uh, – and, and then vice versa. If you're, like, a, a good-hearted person and um, – you know, kind or whatever, and then you all of a sudden you have all this fame and money come your way. Like that actually magnifies the goodness, and so sure. uh, you just want a little like being drunk. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, and uh, I, I think that maybe that's the case. Like maybe you would, but then again, like if you gave some, if you gave these people really good MDMA, do you think like like some sort of crazy person, like um, like you know, like Kim Jong Il, you know, if when he was still alive, or, or Gaddafi, <laughs> when he, you think they would have? They, you think they would have just gone like you know dark? On it, like it seems to me, like maybe they would have had. Uh, I don't know. They probably yeah. they probably would have freaked out. They would have just revel. You know, they'll still revel in the wrong thing. Yeah, they would be. Yeah, they would be like really happy and like feel warm and fuzzy about like genocide, executing people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, I, I, I think what I think what you get in the, with those kinds of drugs is a kind of uh, overwhelmingly positive response to the things you already like. Right, so you're. <laughs> you're 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 kind of you're kind of seeing you're kind of hearing the same song that you have loved for ten years. That you're hearing it with new ears. So yeah, it's no, like you know he, he's still watching his same favorite pornos, but you know it's just get a, he's just getting all the more excited. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Like that's the thing about drugs that's always so disappointing is like how uh, they completely shatter uh, the critical function. You know, at least for most yeah. people, and so all of us, you know, everything's great or. You know, you lose any ability to sort of discern anything uh, about what what you're experiencing. You know, oftentimes with music or movies or whatever, like it just it can put people into a state where like everything's great. <laughs> yeah, and you like doubt your own credibility too. Yeah. Well, uh, that's fascinating, and uh, it's just it's interesting subject matter, like sort of infinitely. And uh, I'm curious to know, like uh, on a personal level, like to write the book, did you feel a similar? Uh, responsibility, you know, uh, in terms of research to like take certain drugs, whether they're pharmaceuticals or hallucinogens or anything like that as a, as a matter of research for the book, or were you feeling like you had enough like visceral or, um, you know, had enough experience with it in college and being around people that were taking this stuff to know? <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, I had gotten enough experience under my belt personally, I think, um, 
from you know I guess what, I mean what is there? There's the kind of there's the kind of painkiller. There's the kind of downer thing. There's the kind of uh, upper of the Adderall and the speed. Um, and then there's the kind of then there's the kind of hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic twist on either of those things. And they kind of all come together and recombine in various ways. Um, but I guess part of the fun was making up new, the new stuff and kind of uh, using what I had already developed and known about um, to sound like I knew what I was talking about or to sound halfway plausible in the effects. Um, I think the gas in the book has um, a sort of trippy effect. I guess that's sort of an LSD or mushrooms thing. Um, but with some kind of anesthetic qualities. And then add, uh, so it was, fun to, it was fun to kind of mix uh, Halorax, and it, it's, it's fun to kind of mix and match the the effects um, to make up some new stuff. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's, and it's like especially interesting knowing that now you're like, you know, your family history, that this is essentially like you manifesting certain aspects of your grandfather's life into your own work. You know, you sort of get to oh, be, yeah. you sort of get to be a pharmacologist. You know, creating these like new. Oh things. yeah, With, without the household going to med school. Right, exactly. <laughs> so much easier. See the the you see the the preceding gen or you know the preceding generations find ways to simplify and uh, make yeah, it you know. So, how has it been for you? Uh, you know, getting this book out there into the world and making your debut. Like, what's been the experience so far? Has it been uh, what you thought it would be? Has it been uh, different? It's, it's been good. Uh, uh, I've, like I say, I've enjoyed it. I feel, I feel like, um, you know, now I guess it had taken, I guess it had taken, you know, five years or whatever, I guess from when I had kind of conceived to sold it. And, um, and so suddenly all that felt like it had happened instantaneously and now it's out there in the world and I think it's, you know, <laughs> I think it's crazy. And, uh, I'm always surprised when, yeah, I'm not surprised when someone tells me, you know, they're reading it. I'm surprised when someone tells me they finished it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I'm, then I'll kind of float. Oh, really? And, uh, and, the, and those moments are very funny. Uh, well, I had, I had someone at work, uh, uh, tell me that they finished it today and they were telling me how they, well, people, I mean, people are so funny. They just want to tiptoe around it. You know, they're, he was saying, you know, kind of remind me of Clockwork Orange. And then as soon as he said it, he kind of like backpedaled and was like, oh, I don't mean to like offend you or anything. <laughs> I'm not going to be offended if you compare it to Clockwork Orange. So it's a pretty goddamn good book. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that comparison, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's not firing on that level. But if you want to say it, you know. Um, and likewise, likewise, the good reviews um, are, are really good. And I'm like, I... You know, I I kind of can't believe uh, what they sound like. And then the more mixed reviews, I'm like, you know, I think I see, I think I recognize my own problems too. And um, I don't know. I, I guess I I guess I'm, I find myself agreeing uh, with the mixed reviews, and then and then looking wistfully at the good ones. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. Like I always, I have a habit of of believing. I mean, it's nice to believe some of the nice things people say, but I have a tendency to, to also believe the not-so-nice things, you know, and maybe yeah. more so. <laughs> oh, I'll believe the worst thing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm always like, yeah, that's probably right. Uh, <laughs> you know, but, and then in terms of the getting the book published, like you did go through 
uh, a bit of an ordeal to get it into print, right? I mean, you had it out and, and you had to eventually. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, tell that story um, a little bit because that's kind of you know probably interesting to people listening. Well, I I had originally through a friend of a friend um, got an agent at William Morris, uh, who was great, and you know I had completely locked into it, and he was a great guy um, and a great editor more so, which you know was really impressive. And um, he kind of guided me through three revisions over the course of a year until we wanted to start shopping it around. Um, and in that in that year, it improved you know more than it had the entire run. You know, it went from you know 700 unreadable pages to something a little bit more manageable and uh, coherent. And uh, yeah, and I was very happy with it. And then you know he took it for another year around. Um, to the big houses who were often very complimentary about it. Uh, but you know, it was, it was weird. It was a debut as fiction, uh, which were kind of the three strikes against it. And so even the people who, even the editors who seem to really like it, uh, passed on it and you know, some, uh, some good, there's some good houses that I will be knocking on. You know, I'll be knocking on their doors again. So I can't say anything about them now. Um, <laughs> smart play. Smart play. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but anyway, then abruptly, you know, uh, William Morris was having this merger, uh, and he kind of my agent kind of got squeezed out, and um, you know, took a severance package, and you know, I can't blame them at all. But uh, pretty much, no one else there wants to take me because I. Uh, I was damaged goods, I guess. Uh, I had gone around to a dozen of these um, A-list houses, and, you know, it was a lost cause. So after that, um, you know, my agent, my former agent, because, you know, he signed a non-disclosure agreement. He couldn't really help me, but, you know, he was trying to help me get another agent. Um, uh, you know, no one else really wanted me either for the same reasons no one else that William Morris did. And, um, you know, I was pretty much just, finally just submitting it to small houses on my own and, you know, through a complete kind of networking accident, um, ran into, uh, someone who knew the guys at Orr and, um, got it right there. And it was a complete fluke. Wow. See, I mean, you just, you just, you just kept going though. You didn't stop, you know? Yeah. You know, I was, I was close to stopping, you know, um, I had, uh, just the other day, I got another rejection for it, actually, <laughs> from a place I had submitted, uh, I guess, geez, it must have been like last spring. So like now, a year later, they're telling me they can't publish the book, which is now out, which <laughs> is a great rejection to get. Yeah, exactly. You should send them a copy. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's great, and it's a good story. And uh, I congratulate you on it because uh, you clearly took, you know, some perseverance and uh, I guess like a little bit of luck too, but that's the way it always works. And, yeah, a lot of luck. Yeah, and it's been great fun talking with you, and I wish you all the best uh, as this thing makes its way out into the world. Uh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Okay, folks, there you go. That's Miles Clee. Go get his book. It's called Ivy Land. It is available now from OR Books. If you want to find Miles on the web, you can track him down out there in cyberspace at mileskley.tumblr.com. He's also on the Twitter, at MilesKlee, and you can find him on Facebook as well. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page, and if you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. 
Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music as usual. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to our sponsor, MP Publishing, who later this year will be bringing you American Decameron, the new novel by award-winning author Mark Dunn. American Decameron tells 100 stories, each of which takes place in a different year of the 20th century. Zany and affecting, deeply moving, and wildly hilarious, American Decameron is one of America's most powerful writers at the top of his game. It will be available as of October 16th, 2012 from MP Publishing. For more info, please visit mppublishingusa.com. Uh, okay, so I think that does it. I think I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to uh, try to clear my head, try to forget about my creative struggles, and instead focus on the many wounded souls wandering the dusty streets of Los Angeles, no doubt locked in creative struggles of their own. And of course, as we know, uh, creative struggles are a struggle of the minor variety. And to even have uh, the opportunity to have such a struggle uh, is, of course, a tremendous privilege. It is a, a dreadful, parasitic nuisance of the human soul for which we should feel enormously grateful. Please remember that Richard Wagner wore pink underwear and that at the age of 30, William Blake witnessed his younger brother Robert's death from consumption. Thank you so much for listening, folks. I appreciate it. Thank you for spreading the word. I will be back again soon with another conversation with another person who has the compulsion to communicate in writing. So that's it. I'm going outside now. I'm stepping away from my desk. I'm turning around and I'm venturing out into sunlight and there's nothing you can do to stop me. <laughs>